0: So welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by a new group of inspirational professionals, and today we're talking about classism. Now, some people believe that we've left classism behind, but sadly, studies show that it's alive and well, and its impacts are huge. The bottom 80% of the United States holds only 12% of its wealth. The bottom 60%, just 3% of its wealth. And despite this huge disparity, little is being done to drive change. In a world where we're working hard to tackle issues around gender, race, sexuality, religion and more, why are conversations around socioeconomic groupings still so often missing from the conversation? Surely it's time we address class barriers, build bridges and work harder to become a more equitable society. So welcome Elise, Amanda, Christine, and Courtney, who are going to share their thoughts on all of this with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. So let's get started with some introductions. Can you each tell me who you are, what you do, and how you identify, starting with you, Elise?
1: Thanks, Sarah. So excited to be talking with you again and appreciate being a part of this conversation. I think it's such an important topic. Um, So my name is Elise Lay. I am the VP of customer experience at Parade. Uh, Parade is a software company. Uh, We're a startup and we build automated tools for freight brokerages. Um, Identity wise, I am a female. Um, Go by she, her, first gen Vietnamese American, uh, born and raised in California
0: and currently living in Los Angeles amazing thank you so much for joining us and you and I were on a panel back in October talking about women in logistics and we had a lot of fun doing that in support actually of blended and the blended pledge which we were excited about too because we got a ton of donations that night so really excited to have you on the show we had some great conversations then so I'm sure we're gonna have some good ones today as well all right Courtney over to you
2: Hi, Courtney Folk. Yeah, thank you very much for having us on. It's this is I'm really excited about it. I've been excited about this all week. Um, so um, my company is Renewal Logistics, and we are basically a 3PL for the fashion industry. And we work with some really cool brands and do fun things to help them get their product out to um, you know, B2C, wholesale accounts, drop shipping, and um, subscription box fulfillment, things like that. Um, identify as she, her, and um, I have a son that's a special needs boy. And so, you know, a lot of this also um, really speaks to me because of my experience with my son. So I was really glad to be here for that. Awesome.
0: And we met in Atlanta at the Woman in Supply Chain Conference, and uh, we've been able to have some conversations since. So glad to have you on board for today's discussion, because I think you're going to have a lot to uh, contribute. So thank you. Thank you. All right, Amanda, over to you. Yes, this is Amanda Montanez. Um,
3: thanks for having us, Sarah. Really appreciate it. I am a Puerto Rican woman um, coming to you from Southern Florida, and I work at Savils. Savils is an international real estate firm here in America. We focus on tenant representation, and my specialty is in industrial real estate, so heavily involved with
0: supply chain and logistics. Awesome. Glad to have you here. And we've met a couple of times. We met again, I think at the Women in Supply Chain Conference too. And um, super excited because I think all of these conversations of having you all on the show came about in October and November. And um, it's really nice to see how this uh, panel and this group of women came together. So thank you, Christine. Last but not least, tell us who you are. Welcome to Blend It. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
4: Um, I'm Christine Barnhart. I'm the VP of Product Marketing and Go to Market for a company called Nulogy. We're headquartered out of Toronto, Canada, uh, which has been a learning experience for me. I've never worked for a company that was not headquartered in the United States. Um, our primary focus is uh, as a multi enterprise um, supply chain operating network really focused in the fast moving consumer goods uh industry so really being that that uh you know glue if you will between the brands and their contract manufacturers and contract packagers um, i identify uh as uh, a female she her so super
0: awesome. excited to be here Yes, and you and I also met at the Women in Supply Chain Conference, which is awesome. Well, we definitely talked there, but we met before
4: that actually at Supply Chain Insights. Yes, we did. That's true,
0: because, and so we actually met each other twice over the uh, over like a two month period. And And I even interviewed you for that one too. I did. Yeah, it was, it's been Mm -hmm. Kismet. It's just been amazing. <laughs> it's been an amazing couple of it months. It is amazing. All right. So let's start by setting the scene a little bit and talking generally around the topic. So what is classism and what does it mean? Who wants to start us off? Elise, I'm going to pick on you. Yeah, I'll,
1: <laughs> I'll go. Um, so when I think
0: classism,
1: it's it's really class discrimination, right? So we we live in a system where... People are valued and treated differently based on their yep. perceived class. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. where do they stand? Um, and it's it it's so. I mean, I think we're gonna get into it, but it's so kind of systemic, uh, and it it reaches every single part of our our system, right? So yeah. um, that's really what it is to me. It's a, it's a it's discrimination ultimately. Yeah, on your status or perceived and, status.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because some people, you know, they ask me, you know, blended podcast, what does classism have to do with diversity and inclusion? But it has everything to do with unconscious bias and it has everything to do with discrimination. And so that's why it's yeah. important at the beginning of some of these episodes is to get everybody's perspective as to what does this topic mean to you? Because it always means something either similar or different in a way that's going to affect how you are working with somebody or how they are working with you or how they're leading a team of people, right? Courtney, Mm -hmm. what does classism mean to you?
2: That's a great question. So I was watching this show called The Gilded Age recently, and there's the perfect example in that show. Have you seen it? Yes. Do you remember in the very beginning when she's talking to her niece and she's like, here's the deal you can only talk to the old, you can never talk to the new, you can only mm-hmm. talk to the old money. You can never talk to the new money. Yes, I think that's exactly what it is. It's how, how do you, how do people exclude others for whatever certain criteria? And then, you know, like, like why, like, why are those who cares? Right. Like um, so they have a, you know, and it's usually based in my opinion on either people don't, um, believe there's enough value in someone else or based on, um, a lot of insecurity in themselves. Yeah. You know, and like sometimes, you know, we make that judgment. relevance.
0: Yeah. And we just make that judgment just by looking at somebody. Oh, hundred like percent. You look at somebody and they might not be homeless, but they might be homeless. And you decide in that moment, do I speak to that person? Do I not speak to that person? do they need help do they need my help should i offer help and sometimes they don't need help they just need somebody to talk to right and so i think you bring up a good point in the fact that it's judgment and i think that classism happens throughout different classes but i think it's very prevalent within the wealthy
2: i think right? it's prevalent in both honestly like i have a lot of friends that are um you know of all walks of life I was talking to a friend who has a special needs son, and she was just like the other day, she's like, Rich people, they always, you know, take over all the this or that. So I think it kind of happens everywhere. I think everyone has some preconceived, not, you know, thoughts about other people. And until you get to know them, you really don't know what's true or not. But certainly, of course, it happens a lot to people who are, you know,
0: Well, you know your example with the Gilded Age, and then I've just finished watching Harry and Meghan. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but holy incredible story! Like incredible no, no story. No spoilers. No spoilers. I will please. not spoil it's it. It's on my list. But there's really some good. examples of classism in there from a, 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 a group of people called the firm. The institution, the institution, yeah, the institution that dictates on a variety Mm -hmm. of different levels. And if you're going to do that, how do you break the cycle of classism? Yeah, you you just can't. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But just sort of, you know, if we're going to bring in examples of different shows and different things that we're watching. I think it's important that we do that because it's a way for everybody to resonate. You know, at least you haven't seen Harry and Megan, but Christine, you have, and you can, I see you nodding, right? Talking about how, yes, there's so many examples of classism there. Um, what do you think classism is? Go ahead. I mean, I think for me, though, I think it goes beyond
4: um, how others perceive you. I think classism is also how you perceive yourself. And I think, you know, you grow up in a in a socioeconomic class and, and often you can self-limit yeah. or at least apply more stress to yourself trying to figure out how to move um, between classes. And so, um, I, I think that classism exists really aclo- across all groups. And, and, you know, fundamentally, it's it's somewhat how we perceive ourselves. And I read something that said that, like, the middle class norm is that education is critical and that that's the path to success and making money. But for those that are in poverty, education is kind of abstract. It's not always viable. It's, they they no- don't necessarily see that. And then to contrast for the wealthy, it's more of like a necessary tradition, right? And so, you know, I I think we have to not just look at how others see us when we think about classism, but how we see ourselves and how it limits our own perceptions of what we can and cannot accomplish.
0: Well, I got my first set of, um, you know, goosebumps from that one because you're so right, right? And, you know, self-sabotage, right? The mindset. How do you mm-hmm. get out of the mindset of the socioeconomic group that you grew up in and see more for yourself? Right. Well, and I think that's,
4: um, you know, Im- impersonator syndrome, right? Um, we talk about that in the context of race, nationality, um, gender, but you have that within, within economic class as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Elise. I see your hand is raised. And same thing, I got, I got chills too because when I think
1: about um, privilege, it's like you're you're born into it, right? It's mm-hmm. you're just born into it, and you have no control, and it does truly shape your identity, right? Mm-hmm. It shapes who you are, and you have no control over it. It's just how what you're born into. Mm-hmm. So that that really resonates.
0: And sometimes it creates those blinders that you don't actually really know what else is out there until you get out and you talk to other people from a variety of different socioeconomic paths. Amanda, what do you think about classism?
3: I would say agree with all of the above. I was going to touch on the self-imposed limitations, but Christine did a phenomenal job on that. (laughs) Um, I just want to add that I... I would say classism is that discrimination that we can't necessarily see immediately. Like, for example, you can't see what someone's bank account looks like just by looking at them, right? We see Mark Zuckerberg wearing sweatpants, and then we see all the sharks in Shark Tank wearing, you know, the suits or everything. Um, so, for me, I I see it more so. In the workplace and in social settings, more so than uh, on a very individual level. I think once you're at that individual level, it's easier to overcome classism than being one on one. For example, somebody of a different race is uh, harder to not necessarily overcome, but uh, differentiate between like racism or like classism, right? I don't know if that made
0: sense. It does make sense. And it's all kind of around the same pot. It's really about bias and judgment of others without really maybe knowing the full story. So, you talked about some examples that you're seeing in the workplace and what you've experienced. Can you talk to us about some of those? Sure. So, in my business,
3: and I think many other businesses um, that are relationship driven, very prevalent, because, for example, I didn't grow up with um parents who went to Harvard and who were in the you know like the tennis club the country club surrounded by all these CEOs who it's my job to interact with them um whereas maybe some kids who might be in the same position as me and it's also their job and I say kid loosely like I'm 23 um my clients are all 20 years my senior so for them to be looking at me it's like and you're a kid, right? Um, mm-hmm. not derogatory, but it's we we joke about it, right? It's it's just how it is. Um, and I take full appreciation of it. But for for another kid coming from a more privileged place, like Elise might say, maybe they have um connections built in that I haven't yet built. Mm-hmm. Not to say that it's impossible, because it isn't, right? I I have been successful in this business. It's just the workaround is is a different path to get to the same level of success.
0: Absolutely true. I mean, think about it. If you've been born into it, you have all of those connections. You have a godparent who potentially is somebody with a that owns a really big business, and you have lots of paths and different ways to be able to get to where you want to be. And sometimes, sometimes you don't even know where you want to be because you have so many options and so many choices. <laughs> and had a silver spoon in your mouth. I mean, let's be honest, right? And so if I think some that's of a it really is point.
4: Some of it is just being comfortable in those situations, right? Like if if you were born into privilege, you already understand how to behave at a golf course. Mm-hmm. You already understand how to behave at kind of maybe a fancy charity event or an awards event. You understand what it means to eat continental style at a fancy dinner, right? Those are things that for many of us, like for me, like I, I grew up in a lower middle class, like really lower middle class, right? Um I'd never been to a golf course. I'd never, you know, dressed for like a high society event. Um I, I didn't understand the etiquette of which I mean you think about pretty woman, which fork to use. That <laughs> those
1: things are real, you know. Seriously. So I still have that problem, right? Um which fork do you use at what time? which spoon. I remember being at a business dinner with um, you know, I was in my early twenties with a bunch of just like you, Amanda, people 20, 30 years my senior. And I couldn't remember if you were supposed to put the fork and the knife like on the plate. <laughs> or like in a cross or you put them on the side for them to take it away. I'm sitting on my phone Googling, right? Like what how, <laughs> how do you position fork and knife on plate so they know to take it away, you know, at <laughs> this fancy restaurant. It
4: was I actually know.
1: it was part of
4: we had a whole etiquette class and dinner as part of my MBA when I went to the university
0: really well mm. and Christine right. like I'm thinking about what Elise said having access to a cell phone to actually google it where you and I in oh, our 20, 20 years ago not have no, google. no. <laughs>
4: I had a flip phone right <laughs> no googling, <There> was <laughs> your mom. No googling right. Was like
0: you either got it right or you didn't and then you mm-hmm. got judged exactly <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh. <laughs> Oh, so so funny. I'm glad that you shared that story, and I love the googling part. But Christine and I, I looked, I looked at your face, and I was just like, she knows. Yeah, there was no. There was good no googling. Yeah, and and
4: by the way, I learned that whole continent. It was like 2014, so it's not even like for me. It was like less than 10 years ago that it was like, <laughs> oh, I finally get this now. Like I, I face the knife towards me, and I cross it, and I yeah, I had no. I idea don't how even to do know that
1: stuff before. I still don't know. I'm. I mean,
4: so. Are we... Ironically, I taught my kids. Oh, nice! I was oh, like, nice okay, you. you know what? Like, I'm gonna go home. We're gonna we're gonna do this as a family because that was I didn't want them to have to worry about that. Like when they, mm.
0: you know, get into business. That is such a good point. Generational classism is sometimes generational, it is. and it's also up to the generations before us. I think to teach some of the things that we do learn, just like you taught you know, your children, when you (laughs) learned what it was, the knife and fork, I still don't know. Um, But that's that's a really good point, right? So what responsibility are we taking as a generation before us, a generation of our own for the next generation to set them up for success? I mean, that's a really good point. Courtney.
2: Yeah, um, I think you and I talked a little bit about this, Sarah, when we were talking about possibly coming on here. Um, so I grew up in a family where my mom what, ran a real estate company and my dad was a mailman. And so they both both worked for other people. And then I married my husband who has the most amazing family ever, kindest people on earth, but they were entrepreneurs and they figured out how to get into business for themselves. And I'll be honest with you, the tremendous amount of our growth and our our ability to To get to the place where we are now in our business came from his parents and the and what we learned from them. And I think that that, you know, like my big takeaway um, is just really, I don't feel like people, I don't feel like different socioeconomic groups talk to each other very much. Yes. And I feel like people don't have a lot, don't take opportunities. I think there are opportunities, but they don't take them because they assume that someone's gonna judge them or assume whatever, whatever the case may be. But the reality is. You know, all those rich families are rich for a reason. It's because the parents have passed down their information on how to be rich to their kids. And so, like, if you're not rich, get some rich friends and learn from their parents, right? Like most mm-hmm. most old people love to talk. So, like, that's my big advice for the whole thing is, and that's what we've always done. We've always found someone who is smarter than us. And, you know, maybe they felt a little sidelined and seen what knowledge we could learn from them that we could then maybe it's not all good advice, but take some of it and apply what is good, and what does fit, you know, Um, so I think that's a huge part of, I I just think a lot of people, I think we would be so much further along as a society, if everyone was comfortable talking to everybody, to other people with an open mind, more like, okay, what can I take and learn from this conversation, rather than what can, what am I going to disagree with, Um, and, and I do think that so much of business, and class, and it's all learned. I mean, in my opinion, you know. Yeah.
0: And it's about um opportunity. But I think on the opposite end of that, going back to what Christine said about mindset. I mean, if your parents have self-limiting beliefs and don't 100%. think that they could ever get to a certain class or, you know, that also is generational and passed down and can also lead to challenges for the next generation in seeing that for themselves, Amanda. Yeah. Um, I challenge my dad
3: often on this. Um, it's kind of an interesting dynamic where he might be like, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, botch me. Oh, and I I challenge him and I'm like, dad, don't answer somebody's no before they tell you no.
0: Yeah.
3: Because maybe I'm trying to do something with CEO of like Fortune 500 company. And he's like, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, they haven't said no yet. So I'm going to try. And what Courtney was saying about um, it's all learned. I agree. And I think it's uh, not solely up to the parent, you know, within um, our socioeconomic status, right? We have our education from our teachers, our finances, um, even from the community, all these things that shape who we are and how we think really shape our self-confidence as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I agree with you, Courtney. It's very important for us to be able to talk to anybody. And I can see the challenge where somebody younger in a lower class um, might be intimidated by somebody who's like very wealthy, powerful. Um, So it's, it's about teaching that lower class, younger person to reach out to that. Hey, it's okay. They're not going to bite you. Um, they have money, but they're not the devil.
0: Yeah. Well, some people are some, some, some people will be, and some people People won't won't be because we have, you know, different people in a variety of different settings. Um, but what is, what is something that you would say to somebody who's maybe, lower class looking to get some education or learn from somebody? What are the platforms that we can use to be able to encourage that kind of conversation and vice versa? Is there a solution out there? Because a lot of times, and I think it's really important for us to talk about this because classism isn't discussed. It's very prevalent. People are still judging each other. People are still having conversations behind closed doors about who you can talk to, who you can't talk to. They're also having conversations in their own heads. Oh, I can't talk to that person because they're way too far out of reach. But with social media, it has brought us closer together and given us way more opportunities than Christine and I had. (laughs) And sorry, Christine, I'm lumping you together with me. No, it's Um, fine. I'm a Gen Xer. In our our 20s, because at the end of the day, we didn't have Google, we didn't have social media. I mean, we had Google, but we didn't really have social media and all that kind of stuff. So what are the ways that we can um, tell somebody or encourage somebody to start having those conversations? I know for me, I think LinkedIn is an amazing place to start um, because I think you can connect with anybody if you write the right note that goes with the connection request. And to be honest with you, I find people a little bit more um, open to exchanging conversations and have conversations with somebody. You really only know them from a picture. So if you're from a lower class and you get a really good picture on your LinkedIn, they're not going (laughs) to know, right? And maybe you're upfront and honest about it. I don't know, but that's up to you. But that sort of, to me, levels that playing field. What do you think, Christine? Yeah,
4: I mean, I think for me, the tools that we use to overcome other types of discrimination and bias um, are really applicable in, in this sense as well. And I think that that is... Um, building relationships. Like for me, it's always been about building a tribe, building, um, connecting with others in my organization and in other organizations. And and they were the people for me that helped me break out of Mm. um, what could have been very limiting, right? So, you know, when I, I, I went to college, I knew I wanted to go to college. I didn't really know why. I just knew that I didn't want to struggle the way my parents did. That was like, for me, the driving force, right? Um, You know, landed a decent job in engineering for Whirlpool. Aspirationally, though, like for me, it was, I I didn't see what others saw in me. I was really, really lucky that I had some great mentors, wonderful people that I worked with that were like, Christine, like, you're kind of bright you have a different perspective, you should do this, you should do that. So I think that those relationships and putting yourself out there and, and learning from others and asking others, like, what do you, what do you see in me? Where do you think I would like, I'm an engineer, but man, I like to talk to people. It's kind of, kind of an odd combination. So now you know i ended up in product marketing of all things right like so far from where i started but i love it it's amazing mm. um but like i said it's not that's not where i saw myself like i i didn't think i was enough right i mean i i'm not smart enough i'm not good enough i don't have the pedigree i didn't go to harvard i never saw myself as you know being somebody that could really be at at an elite level and it wasn't because intellectually, I wasn't enough. It was because of the, that class that I was born in, and what I saw all around me. And so I didn't aspirationally even understand.
0: And I was lucky I had great people around me. And I think that's a really good point, because we've been talking a lot about personally you know, what our environment has looked like, how that sort of shaped us. But we're also here to talk about classism in the workplace, which Amanda touched on a little while ago with your example, right? And so in a workplace, it's really important to, you have access to people, you have access to conversations, you have access to people who are in the C-suite. And that to me is a really good ground like you said, for asking questions and sort of getting through that limiting belief that you have of yourself for whatever reason that looks like and wherever you've come from. Courtney.
2: Wow, so much of what um Christine said is the same for me too. Like I definitely, even today, still feel so often like because I didn't grow up in, you know, uh, an Ivy League background or with super rich parents or whatever that there's still some disconnect between me and other people. And I'm really that imposter syndrome. I, I I am constantly working on shaking that, but I will, I'll say this, like, I think when it comes to like, how do you break those barriers to get in the door where people maybe don't originally respect you? I think it's about gaining that respect. And like, I remember when I met Amanda at the um, Women in the supply chain conference, like she blew me away. She was so smart. She was so focused. She was so you know, confident. And I think that those three things right there, regardless of what your background is, regardless of what your color is, regardless of any of those things, that breaks a lot of barriers. So I think really having, figuring out whatever it takes to get confidence, I think is the key. And then the second thing I would say is, you know, everyone has insecurities, even people who are in that C-suite, even people who, you know, like a lot of times people who are in the C-suite feel like they're about to get kicked out, right? Like and any day I could be replaced if I don't continue to make my numbers and am I going to be irrelevant? And so like finding people who have a little bit of that insecurity and, and learning from them and telling them, you know, look, I, I really respect what you're doing and and I just want to learn. I just want to learn. And I don't feel like I know as much as you do, but it does require you to humble yourself and to be prepared to humble yourself. And I think that that's kind of like the one piece that if people could figure out how to do that well, they're knowledge could skyrocket but i think that's one of the hardest pieces of it is being confidently humble.
0: Yeah, that imposter syndrome when you said that i was like, woo, i think that is prevalent for so many people. It's prevalent for me, you know. Um, i don't know about the rest of the panel, but that definitely hits me on a daily basis. You know, and um i think like you said, you know, you get this people say fake it till you make it it's easier said than done people. (laughs) And I'm not sure you you ever feel like you make it right. Like, so that's the other part of it too, right? You don't ever feel that Amanda.
3: Um, I was just going to touch on what Courtney said about the confidence and the how to for me personally, I started watching YouTube videos about etiquette and about literally there's this guy, his name is, uh, Charlie, Charlie something, doesn't matter. He will diagnose conversations between people like Jimmy Fallon and a celebrity and just diagnose like the dynamic. And I started watching those and learning, okay, this is how I should approach somebody. So I think building that confidence and you Mm -hmm. were asking about what tools, you said LinkedIn. I don't know which tool it is. There's no social... Uh, how to socialize class, yeah. right? In middle school, yeah. Lord knows that that would help us in middle school. If there's like a, here's how to not be awkward class, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but really learning, you know, we say, oh, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what clothes you wear, but really it, it does. And that's just the harsh truth is that it does. Like if I'm coming to you sweaty, stinky, and my clothes are ragged, it's not because you're a bad person that you're judging me, but hey, you know, I can also do my part and try to make you feel comfortable, and not try to look, you know, like I just got out of bed. If we're, I'm trying to have, you know, this important conversation, Um, so put it on yourself a little bit too to make the other person feel comfortable.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's not only like, oh, people are so judgmental and people hate me. Like, you know, look, look at yourself. Um, it doesn't mean change yourself, like do a complete 180, but you know, reflect on, hey, how am I putting my energy out? How am I
0: putting myself out to others? Yeah, and being perceived, right? And I think you brought yeah. up a good point is that YouTube for a lot of people these days are a very good resource that Christine and I did not have in our 20s. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so you university did, all did. the way. <laughs> I think the other part of it is education systems. So you mentioned it with having a a class on how not to be awkward. And everybody kind of laughed. But I'll tell you, I was having a conversation yesterday. And we were talking about how a class on having healthy relationships Mm -hmm. in our high school education, or even in our, you know, middle school or even lower would actually help us from a mental health standpoint from where we are right now in society. We've got a lot of people taking their own lives, you know, and taking the lives of their families and things like that. And it's all because of mental health. And it's because we're not being taught the tools that we need to be able to succeed no matter what that looks like. And when you come from different classes, success can look in a variety of different ways. It doesn't have to be a million dollars in the bank. It could be just a happy family in a particular spot in the in the world that you want to live in, right? And so I think it's really important to talk about how we refine that education system to set set the next generation up for more success than we've been able to have, Elise? Yeah. I mean, education
1: is i uh, I was doing some reading on this, and um, it almost feels like the the merit piece of it so meritocracy um, is is a way to uh, it's kind of like an illusion right uh, in in education right and so I'm talking about just middle class at this point right not not talking about I don't know if you guys watch the wire but you that? know kids you don't watch that so kids born in Baltimore County my sister is actually a social worker she works with kids in Baltimore County in the foster care system, and uh, they just don't even have an opportunity to mm. even get an education, right? And they are learning, as we talked about, from their parents who are, you know, drug dealers, who are, They're that's just what they're taught to do. It's the, they're taught to survive that way in the streets, right? Um, so I think education is, there's so much Uh, to unpack there. Um, But in the context of kind of like my personal experience around um, higher education, right? And meritocracy. And I was always taught by having immigrant parents, like, if you work really hard, you'll be successful. Just do your best. and You'll be successful. It doesn't matter what you do. Just do your best. Just do your best. Just do your best. Um, but I was also, you know, my, my story is a little bit different because my, my parents came over, um, after the fall of Saigon, like literally on a boat, the boat people, like truly boat people. Um, and they stayed at a refugee camp for six months until they got sponsored to come to America. And we had an American family actually who taught us Mm. how to, or taught my family how to essentially assimilate and then I was born 14 years later into privilege right my parents started out here with absolutely nothing they were like janitors at pick and save redoing their education learning English and I was fortunate enough to be born um kind of after they'd already gone through education and all that but it's because they had um they had this family, an American family, that taught them how to be American, right? How to assimilate. Yeah. Um, and so I was really lucky to have things like SAT tutors, right? ACT tutors, and all these things that allowed me to um, enter into the higher education system. But it's because I I came. I was born into a level of privilege, right. right? And when I contrast that with um, people at, at a very low poverty level, they don't even have a chance, right, no. to 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 even prove with through merit, right? And then you say, hey, meritocracy is a way to balance out uh, any discrimination we have in the education system. But actually, it is, it is an illusion because the more money you have, the more you can pay to be taught how to ace the SATs, right? Things like that. So um, there's a long way to go when it, when it comes to education. And it's, yeah. I really think it, it's um for us, we're very lucky um, to be where we are with, with, you know, you know, in, in our businesses and our roles, but then there's a whole class of of people, um, that don't even get a chance.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's
1: the, that's the part that I think is so broken.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: It, and I would add to that, we have a criminal justice system that mm-hmm. criminalizes poverty and criminalizes yeah. mental health. Um, which really, I think that's a big reason when you look at the divide, um, you know, in class and in wealth, um, it, it hasn't improved in the last 20, 30 years. If anything, it's 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 wider than it's ever been. And um the US as an as you know, an institutional or uh, industrialized country, we have more people incarcerated in the United States than um than the rest of the industrial nations. And that and it's because we've
1: criminalized those things.
0: Mm-hmm. I think also, um, and thank you both for for sharing that. I think also there's illusions. Social media has really created illusions of wealth, right? You see the Mm -hmm. pictures, you see the influencers on social media and they're dripping in, you know, whether they're fake or not, because they could be fake. I mean, who knows? Designer clothes and all of this. And I think there's an illusion that's created for the next generation of how easily (laughs) that is undertaken right and and actually being able to get and there's a woman actually on a show called tough as nails it it just started i know we're in january right now but this is coming out in march um and she was in her early 20s she was picked up for bank fraud because she saw this illusion on social media And she wanted that wealth. She wanted all of those things. And so she created a way for herself to be able to get those things, but then obviously went to jail for bank fraud. When she left, she got into the trades and she's now a contractor. And she now talks about how she can make money the right way. But at the time that she was doing the bank fraud, she did not know that that was even an option. So I think when you talk about education, is also the fact of opportunity in how, you know, yes, a contractor is not going to get you that type of wealth, you know, like this, you know, snap of a finger, but it's the right way to make money versus going and selling drugs and potentially going to jail, right? And I think this illusion that social media creates is actually hurting the next generation's In the fact that we don't really understand the reality of money (laughs) and how it equates to what we can buy, like making money, having the money and what it is we can actually afford.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I worked at, I'm now on my eighth startup. Um, and we talk about entrepreneurship and building businesses, Courtney, like you, um, in tech, I think there is this huge illusion yes. and, you know, not to, bl- not to blast any tech founders or anything like that, but, you know, if you come from a really strong socio socioeconomic background, taking risks is like not as big of a deal.
0: Such. Yeah. Right.
1: So true. Um, and many entrepreneurs get praised for being geniuses and don't get me wrong, I'm sure many of them are, and I'm not trying to bash them in any way, but they're they're able to take these risks um, because they have the network, they have these safety nets, and they can always fall back on it. So mm-hmm. like this having this mentality of financial security is a ridiculously like unfair advantage, right? But that's the illusion that you don't kind of see, right? You see, like, oh my gosh, this person came up with this idea and they built this multi-billion-dollar company, and wow, just they did it on their own. And I'm, I'm sure some did, but when you, you know, for me, now my startup, I've known every single founder has had that
0: safety net. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You peel yeah. back, you peel back the onion, and mm-hmm. you really get to see where they started from and what they. St- what they had available to them at the time. I mean, there was a a technology founder in supply chain who I sat down with a few years ago and they were like, yeah, we've got all these people, you know, that from my network and golfers and football players and all these people who have invested in my company. And then they turn around and the business collapses because he takes off with a whole bunch of money. But he came from money. And so to him, it's not a big deal. But for everybody else that worked for him that was waiting to get paid for two months, Mm -hmm. it's a huge deal. It's a huge, huge deal. And so I think the way we think about other people is also indicative of how we grew up and what class we grew up in. Yeah. And I think part of that is.
4: Th- that you you talk about kind of misperceptions like um we've convinced a generation that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps you just have to be resilient and da- and and when you peel back the onion to use your um to use your alliteration there, right um y- you really can't right like y- you need a helping hand you need a sponsor you need some people that will you know help you like I, I have a 22 and a 24 year old navigating the college landscape for them. I was the first college graduate in my family, right? Um so they had, they were privileged to that I could help them fill out their papers, mm. help them with their SATs. And, and so I look at other, you know, kids and I'm like, man, if you don't have that help, no wonder you're being taken advantage of and you're spending more um, on college than what you should for a degree where you're not going to make as much money as what you should. And you don't know better because nobody is there to talk to you about what the return on that investment is. You don't even know what return on investment means. Right. Um, and, and so I think, you know, as a, as a nation, unfortunately we say a lot of things, whether they're true or not is a
2: completely different discussion.
0: Yeah. And you give up when you don't, know what you're doing and it gets too hard and you got nobody to ask ask right Courtney mm-hmm.
2: so um one thing I was going to say what, what she was saying um what Christine was saying just really struck me was um you know like someone helping you fill out your applications right so um my dad filled out my application for me to go to college and he actually helped me get a scholarship and so I came out of school and I didn't have any debt now, conversely, at the other side of that is I have a friend who just went to started going to college. He's at like, um, a really great college. He was from the West Coast. And this was like, what I, I always will pick on him about, you know, like the West Coast feels a lot further along than the the East Coast. In some ways, he had he paid someone to write his to write his, you know, um, essays for college, and he ended up getting into like, one of the best schools in the whole country. And I never would have ever thought to do that. I never, it never would have even occurred to me to do that. And like, that's a great example of what we're talking about. That like, if you have that prior knowledge or you're around the right group or around the right people, all of a sudden things become a lot more obvious to you um, than you were before. And I'll also say another thing about that is that I think, you know, like in business, um, for me personally, we started really having breakthroughs in our company when we realized that we weren't leveraging our network. We were just trying to do it all ourselves. And we we were intentional about going out and, and building and making connections and finding people to be a part of. And there are groups out there that you can, you can become a part of groups. You can become a part of paid groups or free groups to meet more people and to, you know, so like, I do think that there are options out there for people who are, who are motivated to figure out how to build that network. Even if you don't have one to start with, you just have to be self-aware enough to know that you need one. And that's another thing that, I mean, I was like, what, 35 before I realized I needed a network. Like, it's, you know, so I don't know. I think it's really hard. Um, and I, but I really do think it does kind of take a village. And um, the sooner you figure out that network, you know, the better. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And thank you for sharing those examples. Um, Does anybody else have, I know Amanda shared an example of, you know, classism in her workplace um, prior to this. Elise or Christine or even Courtney, do you have any examples of either yourself experiencing it or how you felt when maybe somebody did something unintentionally or maybe actually seeing it um, third party happening to somebody else? I can share an
4: example um something we haven't talked about which is pedigree. Um and so I was interviewing with a company um that was uh located in a tiny town next to a very very large university. Um and when I went to interview with them so they they brought me in, you know, paid for me to go down, they wanted a supply chain professional with experience. 98% of the employees in the company had all gone to this local, very, very large university. Um, and uh, I will be honest with you, it was a real turnoff for me, right? It was, it was very evident as you talk to people that yes, they wanted to hire me and yes, they wanted my knowledge, but I would never be promotable within the company. I was going to come in. They were going to take what they wanted from me, but there was no opportunity for advancement because I didn't share that fraternity, if you will, Mm -hmm. of having gone to that university. And, um, and, and I had kind of sort of already experienced that in my years at Whirlpool, right. Where, man, if you weren't from Michigan and you didn't go to one of the Michigan schools, you were a second-class citizen. So I, you know, I I fortunately knew better than to be kind of enamored by those initial dollars and, and that opportunity. And I, and I was like, yeah, I don't think this is the right opportunity for me, but I think, mm-hmm. you know, we, classism is, is one aspect, but within business, then you have the pedigree side of it as well, which is, you know, did you go to the right school, um, for that company? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's a huge
0: problem in business as well. And it's self-imposed. Like who came up with those rules? Yeah. And it's not necessary. Like, why are we self-imposing these rules and regulations of what somebody needs to be to be in a position? I mean, we I am going to be talking about education in a different episode um, because I think it's important that we dive into degrees and certifications and like all that kind of thing, because a lot of times we miss out on great people, because we're trying to fit them into a box. But that pedigree that you're talking about takes it to a whole nother level, as to whether you are good enough to be in the fraternity, because you didn't do this, or you did that, or you said something. I mean, that sets people off on a whole other path, because then they have to watch their P's and Q's. And like going there is just not okay. I think we see that confounded, especially when we think about
4: the Ivy league and classism in the United States. Right. So, um, you know, you can overcome your classism to a great extent if you determine that you you can break into the Ivy league. Um, but to be honest, based on what I've seen in my 30 plus years, um, I haven't met many people from the Ivy league that I really felt like They were so much brighter, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like they paid for a network and they paid um, to Mm. to have, you know, kind of this group of of like minded individuals. But in terms of the quality of their knowledge and their expertise you know, I know people that have gone to community college that are brilliant. Um, I know people that have gone through the trades that are solving just incredible problems. Um, So I think that the, that educational system and that educational hierarchy um, is confounded um, in a lot of cases with the classism.
0: Yeah. And even with the wealthy, I mean, there was that scholarship scandal. Oh my God. They just had to pay to get their kids into these schools. Like, I'm glad that, you know, somebody came down on them, but I think yeah. this is happening in a variety of different places that we probably haven't even heard of yet.
4: It wasn't it, it like somewhere like 25, $30 million, like
0: over an eight year period that these parents invested but also, to get. Think about being that child. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're good enough to make it into that school. So I need to pay for you to get into that school like talk about mental health but this is another example of classism where the Mm -hmm. wealthy is like I won't take anything less than her going to that school because if she doesn't go to that school everybody else is going to judge me right but my but my kid is not smart enough to get herself in right like that just goes way deeper than we can even talk about in this conversation but we have to bring these kind of things up because the things that we are self imposing on ourselves within our workplaces and how we're talking to people how we're perceiving others is oh anyways a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> Elise <laughs> Yeah, so I have a
1: it's kind of it's a it's pretty interesting because every startup or every company I've worked at has been founded by men, um, of a certain color that went to a certain school, uh, on the West coast. And, uh, I started noticing that trend pretty much immediately. Right. And it's like this boys club top and, uh, very hard to break into. Right. I know this is like the class ceiling, but there's that glass ceiling too. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. And there is a, there's absolutely a bias that you feel um, when you're not kind of in that that C-suite, right? When you're not in the room because you didn't have that kind of pedigree, right? Like, yes, you got hired, but are you ever going to make it into into the room with all the bros that went to that school? Um, and it's interesting because I started developing my own prejudice against people who went to that school, right? Um, Because I had just seen so many negative things in business happening. And um, I ultimately landed at a company that had really incredible founders that were extremely kind people. And I had judged them. I remember going to the website and being like, oh, I can't work at this company. Like all three of them went to this school and I'm not gonna do this again you know it's an awful experience and um when I met them I realized wow they're just they're they're extremely nice and um I'm actually dating one of them now and uh it blows my yeah I know the irony right I'm like man I was a hater for like 10 years and here I am wow <laughs> jokes on me but but the the kind of prejudice that I had was also unfair it's not obviously it's not as important as um the other things we've been talking about but you you do develop this prejudice against mm-hmm. people in the the higher levels right and and I remember asking my boyfriend I was like so have you just you know have you always been really smart have you always been a computer scientist have you always um You know, did you grow up a genius, basically? Like, oh, no, I didn't really care about school. And I didn't have to, I didn't didn't even think about applying to colleges. And then one day my mom said I had to, so I did. And then I got to school. But turns out he's like, you know, both his parents are legacy at that school and all of that. But, you know, he's a very kind, genuine person. And I had judged him making this assumption right and it's it's it just ties into this everything we're talking about about like you know what the your role models or your network has allowed you to have and how that's made you a person I think Sarah you were saying like these kids right that their parents just paid for them to get into these schools like how does that make them feel
0: Mm -hmm. yeah right yeah it's, it's are really
1: interesting. Yeah. Real, all of our yeah, actions,
0: like there's, there's consequences to all of the actions that we take, no matter what yes. class that we're in, in how we speak about things, how we go about doing things, how we create bias around, you know, whether it's a class above us, a class below us, whatever that looks like, we're, we kind of create this whole thing for ourselves. And I think you know, I think it's time that we, we talk about sort of solutions on here as to, you know, what do we do? I think awareness is a big deal. And what's kind of surprised me from this conversation is how many examples we've all had and shared already in the hour that we've been talking of classism. But that it's kind of taboo and we don't talk about it very often and it doesn't get talked about. And people don't really talk about it. They don't necessarily like talking about it. But this conversation is really proof that you can come together from all sorts of different ways, perspectives um, to sit down and have a conversation and wade through some of the things that need to be changed and that we also need to be aware of on our own. And so a lot of what we've talked about today is how do we do this ourselves? But I think there's also a responsibility for the workplace as well. And so what solutions do we want from businesses to help us get through this and wade through all the challenges that we're talking about today? Amanda? So I'll
3: give a quick example of, what Savills is currently doing and many other of the big real estate firms, they recognize that for the past, I don't know, all but maybe 15 years, the real estate business has been very much a good old boys club, right? And kind of what I was talking about earlier where, right, I'm not in that C-suite country club social circle all the time. So what they've done is started giving junior brokers um, either salaries or draws to huh. where they're not solely reliant their first year or maybe first two years, depending on which company you are. Um, so you have that a little bit more security. I mean, you're not living, you know, the Lamborghini lifestyle, your right. first year in real estate and people they'll come up to you and they're like, Oh, you're a real estate broker. Wow. Like he must have a multi-million dollar mansion. It's like, no, you build a business just like Courtney did. Um, And I think Courtney does a great job on her LinkedIn and all her social platforms talking about mindset. Um, So giving people your financial resources to actually be able to have the mindset that Courtney speaks about, Um, because we talked about the internal stress, the risk, right? If I were in my position without that kind of support, I might have a second job and maybe I couldn't. Cold call all day long, or couldn't go to lunches whenever I wanted to, um, and my growth might not be necessarily stopped, but it might not look like a, the exponential or logarithmic curve that it should. It might look really flat for an unnecessary amount of years longer than it needs to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this great quote that I want to share. My one of my mentors told me. Um, it's from Shirley Chisholm, and she says. If they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Yeah. So that kind of mentality is kind of what we have to instill into young people. And I I have uh, put a lot of effort into bringing mentors into my life, but uh, not everybody does. So I think as adults, you know, reaching out to children and inviting them, not forcing them, because there's a difference, right? I've been where my mom's like, oh, you got to talk to me. You never talk to me. That's not an invitation, right? <laughs> um, but providing, true. you know, a good supportive place where maybe you're just like telling them things and and you know, two years later, my mentor told me this quote two years ago, and I thought it was a good quote, but now when I'm like actively day in, day out in the workforce, then I really get to use it. And kind of what Elise said about um the Ivy League kind of circle, you're not in that circle. No, you're not in that circle. But throw yourself in the circle. Why not? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Why not? And
0: I think it, I think it's uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, gotta you sorry, gotta step. Go up.
3: Yeah. No, I'm saying it's, it's uncomfortable. You gotta step out of the comfort zone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. But I think also the good news is is that most people have access to a variety of different ways to be able to consume content. I say that lightly because, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm painting a very broad picture. Um, But with, you know, the internet and all sorts of things, people do have access to a lot more than we used to. And so it's content like this, conversations like this, where people can tap into and really listen to your voices, talking about and motivating them and inspiring them to be like, yeah, you know what, I do need to, think about this differently. Yeah. You know what? That's a good point. I could do that, you know, and I don't think we do enough of it. And so I, you know, I just wanted to add that on to what you're talking about because the resources are there. I think we just have to let people know as well. Right. Courtney, what do you think is kind of some of the solutions that you'd like to see from workplaces?
2: Oh man, that's a great question. Um, so so I look at my husband again. Um, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for the way that he looks at life. Um, first of all, let me tell you a story about me. You're asking before about, you know, people and do they have they experienced classism before? Well, so I grew up in a town where the best job you could possibly have was an engineer at a factory. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was the most you could ever hope for. And. I was this person who had a big mouth and I was always getting into trouble (laughs) and I was a woman and I, you know, I, um, I just didn't fit in where I was. And I felt like a black sheep for a long time. And when I met my husband, that kind of all changed for me. He kind of gave me that confidence that like, you know what, you're smart and you have different ideas. And so you should, you should feel good about that rather than feel like you have to hide those. And the thing about Brian, and and that goes to my point, which I was going to say about like what can businesses do. The thing that Brian always has done is he has always found something in people to respect. Mm. So he could have looked at me and said the same thing, like, I'm I don't fit, whatever. He didn't. He found what was really good and he figured out how to promote it. And that's what he has done in our in our business. He really works with um, like we have a lot of um, a lot of warehouse workers and they're not necessarily people, they're kind of the people that Elise was talking about that are, you know, a lot of times not in a position to where they ever have an opportunity to go to college. Um, they didn't grow up in that environment. So for them, showing up on time is a big deal, right? Like mm. the simple things that we all take for granted here on this call, for them, they're not simple. They never learned them. And so he he really does, a, he does a few things. He Number one, he finds something to respect about people and make sure that the people around them always feel respected. And then number two, he always finds a way to make people have an opportunity to win. So if it's showing up on time, that's your goal for this week is to be here on time, you know, and the ones who do it, he celebrates it. So I think that those are some like simple things. But I think just having that awareness of like who you're really trying to promote in your company and having like a structure of like your company is not going to grow very much if you don't have like a funnel of people that you're developing. And so like really having a development plan for them, even in a small company, I think is the key. And, and, but the key starts with that respect. It starts with figuring out who responds to that, who responds to that respect and who you can see is pliable and who is motivated by that. And then really pouring into them as much as you can um, and seeing how far you can help them grow. So I guess that's my, my two cents on that
0: one. I got chills again. That's the second time this episode. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think you bring up a huge point in the fact that we can't just assume that everybody knows what everyday life is for us and what is expected. I think that it's very important that we share expectations. And if it's something as simple as showing up on time, you know, versus showing up five minutes late, but also understanding the reason for that and working around it. If you give them an 8 a.m. start and they have to take their kid to school and they arrive 20 minutes late every single day, then maybe it's a 9 a.m. start and
2: not an 8 a.m. start and it doesn't make them a bad person. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if you've seen this, but like, there's um, a lot of like new things that are happening where people are doing rather than eight-hour shifts, they're doing six-hour shifts. So you can work like during the school day, and then what they're what companies are doing is rather than having like a normal lunch time, they're actually moving the lunch time later so that that transition period doesn't end up costing the company more money. Hmm. So like think about it like if you have an hour lunch, everyone that was at break before and after you're going to have a few minutes where you have a transition time. But if you move the lunch to like two o'clock. And then all of a sudden that's the break time. And then you can change, you can have a new shift come in. Then you can have two six hour shifts rather than a 12 hour shift. And it really kind of accommodates, you know, what you're talking about from a um, like time management perspective to like help people who have things outside of work to get them done. Innovative thinking. That's what we want from workplaces.
0: Think about somebody holistically and not just as a number and what they can do for you. I really like that. Thank you, Courtney. Elise, what do you think workplaces can do? What can we do better at? Mentorship. I mean, Amanda brought up um,
1: having mentors and I didn't realize how I always had a mentor because I had two older sisters. They're both 14 and 13 years older than me. And so you know, I basically had four parents growing up. Um, anytime I did something wrong, they would tell me, you know, I'd learn from their mistakes and I'd yelled at four times. And um, going into the business world, I never asked for a mentor, but there was always someone, a boss or a manager that had seen something in me and to Courtney's point, pointed it out, right, pointed out that skill set made it visible to me Um, and there was never this explicit conversation of oh i'm your mentor right and then now i'm in this position where i am i i have a team and i'm i'm blown away at how many people because i i would tell them oh yeah my mentor told me this my mentor told me that i keep in touch with all my mentors all former bosses managers and uh, so many people on my team today have actually come to me and and said, "Elise, how do you get a mentor?" Mm-hmm. And that just like blew my mind because I I was like, "How how do you make decisions? How have you gotten this far in your career without having had someone that with more experience to rely on or to ask questions from? How how did you get here without one? Mm-hmm. Right?" And so I think businesses can actually do a lot better at building mentorship uh, programs or even just talking about having mentors yeah. and being really real and genuine and having conversations like this, right? I mean, when I talked about this um, podcast, and it, it was a few people were like, classism? You're really going to talk about that? that? That seems really sensitive, right? <laughs> want to make sure what you say is you don't get canceled. And I'm like, what is being canceled? Like, how would I get canceled? You know, I, what does that mean? Um, but it it is, it is really about the content that we see, right? Um, we're getting pushed information all the time uh, through social media, on the news, all of that. I mean, yeah. I've, there's even songs, right? I have six nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very young every single song that they play has something to do with money, right? right? My money don't jiggle, True. jiggle, it holds mm-hmm. like, right? Like they, and they love it. And it's just mentally ingrained in them. They have no idea mm-hmm. what they're talking about. And um, I think it is our responsibility as business leaders to mentor and be really explicit about, hey, I'm here for you if you have a question or if you need guidance yeah. on anything right? And never have fear to talk to me.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. On the other side of the coin for mentorship, though, that person has to take responsibility for what they bring to the table. And I do want to just put that because I get asked all the time. And I ask them to do something, because I want to see what their response is, and if they actually do it, because if they don't, then that means that they're not going to bring to the table the same energy that I'm going to bring. And I think if if we're going to get into mentorship, I think that's really important. So yes, I think workplaces should provide that availability, but I also think that they need to hold the individual responsible for their role in the mentorship as well, which not everybody understands the expectation from that kind of relationship. And so I just wanted to put that out yeah. there. But you also brought up a couple of really good points in the fact that you talking about coming on this this episode and people saying, well, why would you do that? We need to quash that, whether it's classism or whatever. We need to make sure that people understand that there are places to be able to have safe conversations about topics like this. I mean, shoot, if you were going to be canceled from being on this episode, this is episode 30 for me. I mean, I should have been canceled like (laughs) 25 episodes ago. (laughs) But, and actually, I just wrote a newsletter about cancel culture and the intention behind mistakes because this is where we're at. We don't give people grace, we don't listen to the other side of the story, we don't actually get to know what's happening. And that is a really big example of why that's just not going to work for humankind moving forward. If we are going to make the changes and move away from what we've created as a society, and we're starting to see it. I mean, the next generation is really, really pushing, right, for us to make some changes. They're very vocal. I mean, That whole thing with Greta and Andrew Tate, I mean, God love her, man, because (laughs) she is right to the point, like, do not mess around with me because I'm going to tell you where you need to go and why. Um, And those are the voices that are coming up after us. And these changes are going to be made and we have to be comfortable talking about these things. Otherwise, they're going to hit fast and hard and we're not going to know what to do with ourselves. Just saying. So, Elise, thank you very much for sharing. (laughs) It made me very passionate on a number of different levels. (laughs) Um, Christine, last but not least, what do you think workplaces can do?
4: Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned the whole thing about mentorships, because I completely agree with you. Um, I myself have not had good luck with what I would call kind of the formal here's your list of six people you're going to mentor this year. Um, I've had much, much better luck with people reaching out to me, developing relationships uh, with me personally, and um, then I have in the other scenario. So um, I think there's room for both. But I I do, I do feel like um, a lot of onus is on the individual to um, to ask the questions and to to get the perspective that they need, um, you know, you know, it's on it's on them to come to me and say, look, help me understand where I need to be in this situation. Um, I think as businesses, a couple of things would be number one, we need to recognize that we might be um, promoting more classism with re- with remote work. Okay. Um, while I'm a huge proponent yeah. of remote work, um, I saw like a Gallup poll that said like 71% or 70 some odd percent of the people that made more than 180, 80 thousand a year were able to work from home during the pandemic compared with just 41% um, that made 24000 uh, annually, which, by the way, both of which are above the poverty line. So, if you're below the poverty line, there was pretty much a zero percent chance. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that is something that we, as as businesses, need to bear in mind. And I loved the example, Courtney, of kind of you know innovative work schedules to help you know working families and whatnot. I think the other thing, and and it's probably the most critical, is just getting the verbiage into the DEI program that says, you know, we're going to foster diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion based on gender, race, you know, culture, class, like just get the language in there because then it changes the context when we're, when we're, you know, hiring, when we're promoting, it's, it's that key that we're like, okay, wait a minute, like, maybe we need to ask this question a different way. Or, you know what, we we have six candidates, they're different genders, they're different identities, but all six of them are, you know, socioeconomic, you know, middle class, they all went to the same college. Maybe we need a little more, we need to, to look a little more. Like, I just, I think putting it into the formal documentation for your DEI program helps you keep it top of mind. Mm-hmm. And and that's really what we're talking about, right? It's a bias um and we all have them and the best way to fight a bias is to understand that you have it and to continue to kind of challenge yourself and the people around you every
0: single day. Yeah, absolutely, Amanda. Yeah, Christine,
3: I agree with you. Um hundred percent on being very mindful of that and I just want to add as a business leader um, not that I have you know a bunch of employees under me I don't yet I mean one day well but I have been in groups where I find that sometimes if we're so focused on being so diverse it kind of shoots us in the foot because I think there has to be some level of cohesion culturally to get something done. I've seen where culture maybe is just so uh, different on either ends that we spend time bickering about things that we shouldn't even be talking about instead of like working and getting stuff done. Like at the end of the day, we're a business, we're here to accomplish a goal. Mm -hmm. And if the people around us aren't gonna help us accomplish that goal, I don't care what university, if we're all from the same university or different universities, if we're not being productive, like it's just not a good group, no matter how good it looks on paper or how good it looks for, you know, 2023 standards. Yeah. Um, so I think as business leaders, it's a very tough balance that I I can see how a hiring manager could have a really hard time, um, trying to meet all of those criteria. Like, am I being inclusive enough, but also
0: am I going to put two people together that aren't going to kill each other? Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I, and I, I think that's a really good point. But I think bringing people together to be able to have the conversations where you can hash some of those things out in a safe space would really go a long way to some of that fixing some of those cultural differences um, in the DEI space. And I do agree that human resources, you know, the hiring managers, things like that all do have a heavy lift. Because it's it's really only been something that has been put on them over the last couple of years. We've been talking about this a long time, but not necessarily the action being taken. And to the extent that we're talking about it today. I think for me, team building, getting your people together from different walks of life, doing some activities so that they can have a chance to talk to each other. That goes to the mentorship, like create the space for mentorship, not just a program where you have to force two people together, right? I think the hiring for sure, but I also think the education and training. And understanding meeting people where they're at. So, having that education and training at one level one day, and maybe another level another day, and just being mindful and intentional about um, who's on your team and who needs to learn more about a certain topic and who doesn't, or who needs the next level to that.
4: So, I, I do you think it's that yeah. subtle shift from looking for culture fit to looking at culture ad? Right when yeah. you're when you're building teams when you're hiring, um, I I don't want cultural fit. That's somebody that it fits in very well with me because I want somebody that adds to the culture that that both supports and challenges as mm-hmm. as you know we move through business cycles.
0: Yeah,
2: Courtney. So what I, what I was going to say about that is um you know bringing people together that aren't naturally a fit probably like um. What is that company? Um, it's the hotel chain that um, the Ritz Carlton. You should check out their, their plan for building a culture. It's really cool. They actually have these core behaviors. And every day they promote a single core behavior. And they do it, I think, for like a month, that same core behavior. So it gets ground into people's minds. And so you can kind of take like your values as a company And you can turn them into what do these values actually look like in terms of behaviors. And then you can reinforce those daily with people who aren't, you know, so then you can bring people in and assimilate people who aren't necessarily exactly like you and who aren't going to think like you because you're telling them the rules. You're telling them here's how here's the play by play for my business. So I think I think it's all, um, you know the first step is exactly what Christine said, which is, you know, being intentional about br- bringing people in who are different and who are going to add. And then, but that, it doesn't end there. It, it th- Then you have the next step, which is building that culture around it. Hey, Amanda, last words before we get to the last question. Okay. I was going to add something
3: external kind of shift gears a tiny bit. I don't know if this relates to your next question. Maybe I'm forecasting. I don't know. Um, <laughs> What about changing classism business to business? And the example I'll give is, you know, somebody like Walmart, huge company, maybe might not hire, you know, Joe and company, trucking company for their logistics. No, they're going to hire like an XPO or a Maersk. Um, so I don't know where that decision making necessarily has to be changed. But for the entrepreneurs like Courtney where it's a growing small business um there's that classism between you know big companies do business with big companies and small businesses do come mm-hmm. do business with smaller companies um I find it that it's hard to kind of level up
0: yeah so like That's such a huge topic, and I think I'm probably going to have to turn that into another podcast episode. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that companies are, they do have supplier diversity programs, and so they are starting to try to do business with smaller companies. It becomes a challenge, though, because around contracts and payments and all sorts of things. So that dives into a whole nother realm of conversation, but I'm really glad that you brought it up. And I'm definitely going to look at that for another episode because it is a big topic, right? Classism between business to business. How do we create more of that conversation and more supplier diversity and things like that? So last question for each one of you, what is the one takeaway? Just one thing that you would like people to walk away from this conversation thinking about, taking action, talking about? Uh, Courtney, I'll start with you.
2: Um, Pick someone who doesn't look like you and have a conversation with them with a very open mind. Love that. Christine? I think it's um,
4: continue to
2: challenge
4: yourself and the people around you. Um, Challenge yourself to, you know, why can't I be the CEO? Mm -hmm. Why can't I? Amanda.
0: Right. Mm hmm. Amanda. (laughs) Um, I would say give yourself grace. Grace. Be confident and give yourself grace. I always talk about grace. At least, last but not least, reach out.
1: Don't be afraid and be real. That's always, Sarah, every time I talk to you, that's always my takeaway. Don't be afraid to reach out and be yourself and be real.
0: Man, I appreciate that, and I appreciate all of you, and it takes a lot of courage and bravery to come on an episode like this to talk about the sensitive topics. So thank you so much to Elise, Amanda, Christine, and Courtney for joining me today. Research from Columbia University revealed that working class workers are more likely to experience harassment, to be dependent on their job for their well-being, and that their circumstances prohibit them from enrolling in internship schemes to the same extent as their wealthier peers. But despite this, there are a few schemes to reduce so Social disparities in the workplace, with none of the top 50 companies praised by Diversity Inc. for their diversity and inclusion efforts, making specific mention of socioeconomic status in their programs. So this has to change. A diverse workforce is more innovative, productive, and profitable, and a diverse society is a happier and healthier place for us all. So remember that you can reach out to me or any of the guests on social media if you have anything you'd like to add to what we've talked about. About today. And remember to join us again next time for episode 31 of Blended, where we'll be diving into a topic that actually follows on well from classism, and that's education. Education bias has increasingly come under the spotlight recently, particularly in the light of labor shortages we've seen industry-wide. So it's a perfect time to really explore what's going wrong or right with the way we think about education in the workplace. It's going to be a really valuable episode, so make sure you don't miss it. Ladies, this was absolutely fantastic. Thank you all so much for coming on and sharing authentically and being part of the Blend of Family. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah.